Welcome to episode 25, supporting clients in developing academic confidence, helping them move from feeling impossible to I'm possible by Dr. Mark Stevens, licensed clinical psychologist from Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello out there. My name is Dr. Mark Stevens. Uh, I'm a psychologist and faculty member at California State University Northridge. And I'm really excited to be able to talk with you about a subject matter um, that I believe is really important and isn't discussed very much. Um, and the title of this talk today is supporting clients in developing academic confidence, helping them move from feeling impossible to feeling I'm possible. Let me say up front that uh, at Cal State Northridge, um, I've uh, developed a program, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the background of the program. But before I forget, if you want to go to our website, um, it's uh, Excel, uh, uh, spelled E-X-C-E-L, Experiencing Confidence and Enjoyment of Learning, California State University, Northridge. I won't give you the whole website, but if you Google that, you will get to our website. And on the website, we have a variety of, of videos, uh, interventions that we're doing with students. We've got resources, um, and feel free to, to contact me if you have any um, questions. A little bit more about myself and how did I become uh, involved uh, in this program called Excel, Experiencing Confidence and Enjoyment of Learning, while I was the uh, director of University Counseling Services. That was something that I did before I um, uh, became a full-time faculty member. Uh, I've always uh, been interested in sports and sports psychology um, and I worked at uh, Ohio State and, and, um, and USC uh, uh, developing programs for our student athletes and a lot of that work is around motivation and uh, getting into some of their attitudes how they're approaching a variety of different tasks usually it was around um, how they were performing um, athletically and so that's always been sort of a part of what I do as a psychologist in terms of thinking about motivation, thinking about attitudes and how that impacts um, people. And then specifically in terms of coming to a Cal State Northridge, uh, our university is an open university in that um, we attract wonderful, beautiful people from usually around the Los Angeles area. Uh, and they have uh, typically been struggling academically. It's big for them to get into college. Many of them are first generation college students. Uh, and uh, what goes along with being a first generation college student is oftentimes not knowing how to negotiate through the educational system. Uh, sometimes they don't have parents that um, have been familiar with how to negotiate and sometimes they've sort of been left behind in terms of how do I move through getting uh, this education. Uh, a quick story um, that has stuck with me for, for a while. Uh, our office was on the fifth floor uh, of, a, of a building at CSUN and it just happened that on the fourth floor and the third floor a lot of students were taking what we call developmental math. These are students that didn't get a high enough SAT score, um, they didn't pass certain things and they came in as a first-year student needing to take uh, developmental math. Uh, the, the course did not um, count as credits, but they needed to pass it in order to, to move on. So I'm on the elevator. They don't know who I am, and I get a chance to um, kind of spy on their, their conversations. 
And someone asked one of the students, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm going to dummy math. And my stomach tightened up. I'm going, this is a college student walking into a math class with an internal narrative or dialogue that I'm going into dummy math, that I'm not smart enough. And I started to wonder about their sense of belonging at college um, and how that sense of belonging may impact how they do in college. Um, I started to think about, uh, again, from the sports psychology background, what happens to someone that walks into class that thinks that they're not very smart, that they're stupid? How does that impact their academic performance? So I started to think about our students as academic athletes. In fact, I called them academic athletes, that there's some really similar types of, of behaviors and attitudes that go into becoming a better um, athlete that parallels to becoming a better academic person as well. So I started this program, and we've had, uh, fortunately, um, a lot of, of success with that. So in this podcast, I'd like to share with you some of the ideas that I have, and specifically some of the interventions that we do with college students. Please know that um, these types of psychoeducational self-reflection exercises can be used with high school students. I've done it uh, as well with high school students. If you're a school counselor or school psychologist, if you're seeing um, uh, teenagers and, and above in your private practice, um, I would encourage you to ask them about how they feel about themselves as a learner. In our intakes, we ask them lots of different questions about their self, uh, we might call it self-efficacy or self-concept, their confidence levels. And we try to assess, how do you feel about dating? Um, how do you feel about um, the type of friends that you have? What kind of confidence do you have to speak up for yourself? We use a lot of uh, language around self-efficacy and self-confidence when we're trying to help um, our clients uh, improve their assertiveness skills. But you know, very little attention has been given in, in the mental health professional and psychology about how do we assess um, and how do we talk about with our um, clients uh, about their academic self-image or academic self-efficacy. And it's guaranteed that they all have a narrative. They all have a dialogue. When they walk into any class, when they're taking a test, they're thinking about, um, how good am I at this? I talked about parallels with sports psychology, and I remember working once with an athlete who just hated left-handed pitchers just could not, just felt intimidated by left-handed pitchers, and particularly a type of pitch that they would offer. And so when this person was walking up to bat, there wasn't this sense of, I'm going to be able to, I, it, he's mine, I'm going to be able to do it. That doubt about, I'm, I'm not really good at hitting left-handed pitchers, um, I think I'm going to be taken out of the lineup, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to work with their, with their attitude um, about their confidence. Um, one of the um, ways that I've discovered about how people deal with their um, academic confidence is that they usually don't. They usually have tons of hidden narratives that go um, unspoken. They, they create what is called compensatory behaviors rather than deal with some of the academic struggles that they have, they tend to go silent on them. 
What are some of these compensatory behaviors? Folks that aren't very good spellers, I can relate to that. Um, they end up having really bad handwriting so nobody can see that they're not able to spell. This was, I'm aging myself, this was before they had um, word check and, and all of that. But still to this day, when people have to do handwriting in class, they talk about that. Other compensatory behaviors are is that they end up externalizing. They end up blaming the professor. And last, what's really important, is that they end up having a fixed mindset about their ability to learn new or perceived difficult material. They don't have a growth mindset. They have a fixed mindset. I'm stupid at this. I'm never going to get better at this. I've never been good at math. I've never been good at writing. Whatever that narrative is, they have said to themselves, it's not going to get any better. And usually they're not proud of it. They're not going around going, ooh, I'm not very good at math. So it goes hidden. And there's a bunch of behaviors that end up happening because it goes hidden. I'm going to talk about some of these in more detail, but one in particular, and particularly with males, have a really hard time asking for help. They don't want to get shamed. They don't want to tell somebody that they don't know this and thinking that they're going to get one of those glances or looks that says, um, you don't know this. You should know this. Your sister knows this, and she's three years younger than you. So I'd like for us to have a, a conversation about um, how people develop their academic self and how can we work with our clients that may be struggling with academic confidence issues. So in some generally speaking, let me tell you what the program, uh, what we do. Um, with our students, and then talk a little bit more uh, specifically. One of the things we do is that we encourage self-reflection about one's process of learning. We actually ask them the question, tell us about how you learn, how do you approach learning? Um, and surprisingly, some of the students go, I've never been asked that question before. They're asked, you know, are you doing your homework? Are you putting in enough effort? Are you spending a much, as much time on it as you need to? Are you procrastinating? There's a negative sort of tone. But in a, in a, in a curious sort of way, can we ask our clients, without judgment, I want to know how you approach learning. And how do you approach learning differently for different subjects? And what goes into that approach? What's your narrative? What's your experience? So that they can start to kind of unpack what their process is, is like. And ideally that we're listening to them without trying to shame them, but saying, that's really courageous for you to talk about this. Have you ever said this out loud? And oftentimes they say no. And oftentimes it feels really good to be able to um, to talk about that. I'll talk to you about an exercise that we do in class that, that will highlight this. We ask them to share their stories out loud. Um, and these stories out loud, um, I don't want to move into a deficit model, so I want us to look at this from a really a more of a holistic model, is that their story, the stories that they share that sometimes they in, involve shame, embarrassment, giving up, but they also involved not quitting. They also involved pride. And they also involved these aha learning moments. That's really important for us to unpack. And it may be something that they've learned that isn't, quote, academically related. But they've learned something that um, they might be able to use uh, in their academic uh, lives. And again, I'll share some more details about that. The process, like anything else, of increasing confidence is not usually a single trial solution. Um, um, but we do want our clients to have the sense of 
empowerment that they're going to try something and they're going to try it again and they're going to use failure as an opportunity not as a definition of of who they are so before we get into some of the details i want to ask you all to do something not right not right now um, it would take a little bit too much time but in order for you to have as much empathy, to be able to understand the process, I know that each and every one of you, no matter if you have a MD, PhD, JD, you have a million different initials after your name, you have struggled academically somewhere. You're able to relate to um, some narratives that you've had about yourself academically. There's been something that has come not very easy to you. And I think it will be important for you to um, unpack that, to get a sense of how did this develop? What kind of compensatory behaviors did I develop because of that? Did I share it? Did I not share it? What were some of the narratives that I used to describe what I wasn't good at? Did you use the word, I'm stupid, I'm lazy, um, I'm never going to get this? And as you unpack it, I hope that you will find some compassion for yourself as you unpack it. And as well as start to sort of understand the process that we all have had times where we struggle with learning and just how difficult it is sometimes to be able to um, put that out loud. I've used a couple different words, self-efficacy, self-confidence, self-image. I'm probably going to use those interchangeably. Um, what I want to say generally speaking when I use those terms I'm really talking about a mindset in terms of our perceived abilities to learn new and perceived difficult material. So what do we do? Talk about a, a paradigm. It's a interactive kind of a psychoeducational um, type of, of workshop or that you can work individually with your clients and involve self-reflection as well. And there's seven steps or seven building blocks that I've um, put down as a paradigm to uh, increase academic um, confidence. Let me start with the first one. It's probably one of my favorite ones and it's a, it's a psychology term, it's a religious term, it's a philosophical term, and the term is purpose. I believe that um, when I work with college students, um, I want to be able to understand more about what their purpose is for going to college. I want them to remember their purpose. I want them to um, tell me about their narrative because I believe that purpose is really the engine that is central to our choices that we make. And I found that oftentimes um, with some of our college students and sometimes our first generation college students that they have a sense of purpose but it isn't really defined. And I want them to be able to define it um, more than um, like, why are you going to college? Uh, well, I thought it was a good idea. I want to nuance that much more for them to kind of feel connected to why they are there. Um, so I think when you're working with any of your clients, it's, it's important to start out by asking them, what do you see as the purpose of learning? Why, why is that important to you? 
sometimes you're going to end up finding out that I never thought about that. I'm not sure why it's important. I got to do it. I don't want to disappoint my parents. Um, I don't want to get in trouble. Learning is kind of a chore. And unfortunately, um, research suggests that the enthusiasm for learning starts to take a very big dip. If you're looking at sort of this bell-shaped curve, it starts to take a big dip in third and fourth grade. Kindergarten, people are enthusiastic about learning. They don't even know that they're learning. They're going, woohoo! You're coming home, they're telling their, their caregivers, their parents, grandparents, whoever, this is what I learned today. But something starts to happen where learning becomes a performance, becomes pressured, becomes competitive, and they lose that sense of purpose. So when I'm working with students, I want to help them remember what it was like when they were younger to learn and ask them the narrative. How did that dwindle away for you? You're in 12th grade right now. You've just shared with me, and I'm, I'm not judgmental, is I hate going to school. I hate learning. I hate studying. I'd much rather be doing a whole bunch of other things. So compassionately, let's, we can work on, let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. And I try to not shame them and say, you know, on some level, it's not your fault. You, you grew up in a system where we started testing you. We started doing things that kind of pushed at your confidence, comparing, uh, et cetera. And in some ways, our system has taken away that, that passion for learning. So I want to work with you on remembering your purpose and, and finding your passion. So that's number one step. Number two step is, I call addressing the unspoken. We've all been crumbled academically. And we don't really sometimes know what our academic worth. The metaphor that I like to think about is that, imagine yourself a $20 bill. And every time someone tells you you don't have value. You're stupid. You're lazy. You're not as good as your brother or sister. You should know this by now. You're not trying hard enough. That if, if the $20 bill is a sort of value about how much you're worth academically, it could be a $100 bill, whatever it is, and it starts to crumble, and it starts to crumble even a little bit more. And by the way, this crumbling starts very young. Um, when I talk with clients and I help them unpack some of the crumbling, they're telling me stories when they were in kindergarten, how they've been crumbled. So we want to find out how crumbled they are and what they're doing with this crumbling because the metaphor that I like to talk about with them is that this $20 bill that's been really crumbled and now it's in a little bit of a ball and that's their academic self-worth, they don't know what their value is. They've forgotten what their, their value is and they go around feeling crumbled. Now feeling crumbled also has another side effect which is um, I don't really belong here. And for, for students that are in college and that they feel really crumbled, they have a sense of, they're going to find out about me. They're going to find out I'm not very good at this. And not having a sense of belonging can have a really um, big impact on how students approach their learning. So I asked the students, I asked my clients, um, to, to take this $20 bill. 
to show me how crumbled they are and to start to uncrumble that with their stories. Tell me how you got crumbled. Tell me that story of fifth grade when your teacher embarrassed you in front of class because you didn't you, you, you raised your hand and you said something and, and she said something that was really mean to you. Tell me the story how a tutor said, you should know this by now. Tell me how the story about how a parent compared you to um, a younger sibling. I want to know about those stories. Um, because we need to do something with those narratives and those stories. We need to create a new narrative um, around that. And we need to take a look at the impact of what someone is struggling with when they feel so crumbled. So when they start to uncrumble, one-on-one -on -one it's very nice. You should see what happens in a group. And these people say, I've never said this out loud before. And they're relating to other students their own age. And they say, yeah, I was told that I'm not that I'm, I'm never going to be able to go to college because I'm not very good at pick the subject. They tell stories like that. And these are hidden stories. And it's so relieving for them to share this narrative because it creates sort of what I call a, a, a new window of opportunity. You get to redefine yourself. You've let other people define you for all these years, and I understand how, you, how that happened. We, that happens through trauma um, all the time that we, that we end up defining ourselves sometimes through the trauma that happened. I start even to define what went on. I said, you know, that's kind of like a mini trauma. When someone has, has treated you that way, it sticks with you. It's embarrassing. It hurts. Just the fact that you shared this publicly, you've done a great job. Now let's look at how we can create a different narrative. So how can we help students create a different narrative? I wish that just by uncrumbling they're going to go, okay, I've got it. Uh-uh. There, there are techniques, there are things, there are attitudes that we need to share um, with our students, with our clients. Particularly, again, I go back with first-generation college students, and they haven't learned a lot of the lessons of, of navigation. And so this gives us an opportunity to be able to help them navigate systems. But the first thing that I, I talk with them about and I ask them is, how do you ask for help? What is it like for you to ask for help? What are your experiences of asking for help? Um, what are some circumstances that you asked for help and what are some circumstances that you just felt so emotionally paralyzed that you didn't ask for help? I think you can also um, imagine that uh, males, with their pride, sometimes have an even more difficult time asking for help. So I ask the stories. What, what, what is your resistance about asking for help? And the number one answer is, I feel shame and I'm afraid I'm going to be embarrassed when I ask for help. And so we we talk about some of the stories that's happened, unpack it, look at the narratives around that. And to be able to, to talk with them and saying, um, you know, help is absolutely, absolutely necessary for us to improve. Um, and how are we going to gain the courage to be able to feel more free to ask for help? So I share a couple different stories. One is, which is actually very empowering, because I find that sometimes my clients and the students, they don't know how to ask for help. What they might do is say, I don't understand this. Help me with this. And 
depending on who the recipient of the request is, sometimes they feel, okay, we'll do that. Others kind of resent it a little bit. So I give them some inside information about what's the best way to ask for help. And what I believe, being on the other end of being asked for help by my students um, quite a bit, is what I found in, in talking with other faculty members, what we appreciate is that they've got a little bit of skin in the game. That the student will come into you and say, I understand this, I understand this, I understand this, this is where I'm stuck. I'm having a hard time bridging. So I know that you've engaged in this process, that you haven't given up too quickly, but you're really thinking about where is it that you need help. And then it offers the person that you're asking sort of a compass of, okay, this, this is where we can start. That's one of the things I talk about. Um, the other is um, a sense of entitlement for asking for help, that you deserve this. Human beings deserve to ask for help. And particularly for students, you're paying to, to, to get help. And you have every right to ask for help. So we talk about what the process is. Sometimes we even role play how to be an assertive help seeker. So with some of my clients I work with students, I said, you know, one way to sort of get rid of some of the anxiety that you have is just be upfront, be transparent. Um, I know it sounds a little bit corny, but when you go into your tutor, or you go to your professor, your teacher saying, start out with, this is not easy for me. I feel kind of embarrassed. I'm wondering if I'm taking too much of your time. Um, uh, but I'm really stuck, and I really want to get better at this, and I do need your help. I'm not good at asking for help. I'm really, I avoid it at all cost. So I'm letting you know what it's like for me. And sometimes that can really help reduce your anxiety. The other thing that I talk about is um, when you're asking for help is have you had this experience that when you're um, asking for help and you don't get it right away, the person is going to say to you that, that, that you're working with, do you get it? And you go, no. and you're starting to feel a little bit tight, or am I taking this too much of this person's time? Watch your narrative, watch what's going on. They ask you again, do you get it? And you go, I don't really get it. And your stomach is getting even tighter. Then you ask it, they try it again, and the tutor says, oh, now, do you understand what I'm doing here? Do you understand how? And you go, yes. You give what I call the glazed eye nod. We've all done it. That your head is going yes, but you really don't get it. And so when we're seeking help, be mindful, be aware of what's going on. Sometimes you're trying to protect the tutor. Sometimes you're trying to protect yourself from not getting it. Um, think about how you're, what you're going to say when you're starting to feel that sort of tightness that I don't get it, but I feel compelled to say, I got it so I can move on. Number four, if I'm counting correctly, is, and this is where my sports psychology background comes in and I've, I've um, shared a little bit um, with you is being mindful of your attitude about learning. Uplift your attitude. 
And my clients, uh, the students, we get a lot of giggles when we start to do this because they start to go, wow, yes, but I've never <laughs> said that before. Um, yes, that's what's going on. I give an example as a sports psychologist sometimes about, you know, when you're getting ready to shoot a hoop, um, you're on the free throw line, and if you go, gosh, that hoop looks really small, the ball feels really, really heavy, I'm really, really tired, it's unlikely that you're going to make that free throw. You've already kind of started to talk yourself out of um, making your free throw. And by the way, as we know around attitudes, that even if you don't say something out loud, your brain listens to it and it actually responds to it. So if you're saying the ball feels too heavy and the, and the, uh, the rim looks too, too small, your brain is and your whole body is starting to say, oh yeah, and you end up responding that way. Well, the same is true for learning. And so I try to unpack with, um, with, our, with the students or with clients their narratives around they approach learning. What are you saying when you walk into class? And they get a giggle out of this when I say, are you walking into class saying, I'm really hungry, I wish I wasn't here, this professor is really boring, um, this is a waste of my time. People start to giggle. And we talk about your brain is going to end up shutting off. You're going to sit in class and you, you've already told your brain, I don't want to be here. Again, I say that this is not your fault. This is not your blame. There, there's a part of the process about how learning has become a chore. And so when you're doing this, it's like you're not looking forward to going to class. You're looking forward to class being over. Same thing with books. I ask them, what, what do you do when you approach a, uh, a book and reading the chapter? They go, what do you mean? So well, just take me into the room. Let me, let me see what you, what you do. Teacher says to you, read three chapters. What do you do? They go, they start to think about it. Oh, one of the first things I do is I see how many pages it is and I start to think internally, this is really going to be long. This is going to take much more time than I thought it was going to take. Oh, and so we laugh. We say, again, your attitude about learning has just started to be shaped as you approach this, this book with the attitude of, I don't really want to be here. This is way too long. And so they just start to think about how attitude kind of impacts what they're saying to their brain. What are some interventions that I like to do? One in particular, you don't have time to go over all of them. I ask them to go on a road trip with their book. So what do you mean? I asked them, have you ever been on a road trip? I said, road trips are really really fun and I tell them a little bit what a road trip is and they get it and start to say take your chapter as a road trip you don't know where it's going and you've got time and maybe you're going to think about a concept a little bit longer that really catches you so take each page and don't look ahead just start reading Start to think about where is this story going? Where is this learning going? What am I starting to bring into my, my brain? I said, just try it. See what it is like. And that's one of the ways that um, ideally you can start to create some new um, kind of patterns. I call learning habits not study habits, but learning habits, that you create some different learning habits. Um, 
and try to bring a little bit more of the joy into learning. So again, I'm going to keep on coming back to this joy of learning, the experiencing confidence and enjoyment of learning. How can we do that? Again, looking at these building blocks that will help our clients, our students, gain a better sense of self-confidence and efficacy as they start to create new learning habits and they start to get some wins in places that they didn't think that they were going to be able to. Uh, number five out of seven, um, purposeful effort pays off. We all know that, and we've all had lots of different experiences where effort pays off. There's almost like this little bit of a, of a, of a, of a recipe that says, ah, effort will pay off. And so we talk about what kind of effort. That's why I call it purposeful effort, not just kind of putting in your time, but what the purposeful effort is. And for many of these students, they haven't developed some of the techniques of purposeful effort. They know how to put in time, but they're reading and they're glazing over. They're not engaging in the material. And they go, okay, I've been studying this for two hours. I'm done. That really isn't purposeful effort. There takes a little bit more of what I call sort of a weightlifting to be able to build that academic muscle. So what might that look like? What do I talk about with my students and, and with the clients? When you're in class, how engaged are you in the conversation? Do you raise your hand and ask a question? Are you thinking about where the professor is going with this? Um, one of the things that I suggest that the students do is, and I let them know, professors, teachers are always putting out breadcrumbs. They typically don't get to the end, but they're, they're taking you on a journey. If you start to think about the journey that they're taking you on and anticipate that, that's purposeful effort because you're engaged. When you're hearing stuff, are you be able to relate to it? Are you able to like just think about what that, what that might mean? How are you going to use this material? That's purposeful effort. It's not just sitting down with a book in front of you. There's an effort that goes on in your brain that you enjoy the learning process more and it makes it more um, relevant to you. Let me think if I want to say anything else about purposeful um, effort. Um, I might come back to it, but I'm, I'm going to move to, to number six. Kind of a funny one um, is um, talking with students about distraction magnets. I lift up the phone, my phone, if you can visualize this. I, I lift up my phone. I show the student. Sometimes I'll show the client. Um, and I say to them, I've got my mini computer in my hand. Um, it, it does, it's, it's amazing how much it can do this little thing, what it can do. Um, it does much more than the computers that were made early on, the big computers that were made, this thing does everything. Um, and I say to them, it's, you've grown up in a society where you've become really addicted to this, what I call distraction magnet. I have a little bit of a joke with them and I, I say to them, um, when I'm working with a group of students, I show them where the button is on the phone. And I actually say, if you don't know that these distraction magnets actually have a button, and if you press it for um, you know, five or six seconds, it actually goes off. 
let's experiment with this. So I, I asked them to turn off their distraction magnet. And I said, I want you to just pay attention to what it's like knowing that in this next hour, whether it's the, the, um, with a one-on-one -on -one client or in a classroom, what it's like not to have this distraction magnet on. I want you to be aware of everything, what it's like, and jot it down. There's some really good research, um, some research that's coming out of Cal State um, Dominguez Hills um, that you can look up about brain activity um, around um, anticipation of the sound of the phone going off, the, whether it's the vibration or the ding that's going off, our brain starts to salivate. And we end up, um, when we hear the noise, and even if we can't get to it, our brain gets distracted. We want to see it. So adolescents, um, young adults, this has been part of their system. This is their normal swimming pool that they're in, that they're used to uh, getting distracted. And their brain doesn't know how, in, on many levels, to sort of move through experiences of life without being distracted. So it's a behavioral technique. I mean, it's, it's as, as simple as that, is I ask students to experiment. Um, experiment in the class, but even more importantly, to experiment while they're studying. Turn off the phone. Don't put it on silence, because you'll still hear the, the vibration. Turn it off and go put it away in the drawer. What the research is suggesting out of Dominguez Hills, I don't know if I have the exact numbers on it, but the efficiency of studying and learning goes way up when that distraction magnet is not around. Because as people are starting to read, and it doesn't matter how far they've gotten into the, into the book, into the chapter, that noise goes off. Their brain waves start to do something different. It's not the comprehension brain waves that we know is really important for focusing and absorbing material. Um, and they have to look at that all-important text of, what are you having for dinner? They can't, and, and many of them, as we know, we're not going to get into it today, feel like if they don't get back to their friends in a very short period of time, they're going to be rejecting them. And they, they have this sort of uh, uh, mathematical equation of how fast you're supposed to get back to certain, to get back to certain people. So I asked them to experiment with it, try it. It's really about engaging their brain in the task, in the opportunity to learn without distractions. It's not easy. And I'm sure those of you out there, um, hopefully you're not, if you're driving, you're not looking at the phone at the same time that you're driving and listening to this podcast. But you know what it's like to be distracted. You're going to have some empathy about that. So I might suggest, and I do this, I, I've, gone on, I've gone a week without my cell phone. I got to tell you, it's the best vacation I've ever had. People will find you. But more importantly, I was able to experience what life is, is like without this gigantic distraction. Direction method. So it just takes some practice um, to be able to do it and see what your brain does. This is the last one um, that I want to share with you, and I'll I'll take a little bit of of time with you uh, on this. And this is a um, sort of a, a, a concept that is really quite important, and it, it, it builds on resiliency. All of our clients 
all of our students have had um, incredible learning successes, tremendous learning successes. The problem is, or the difficulty is, is that they haven't absorbed them in a way that they're utilizing them. They've had those experiences. It's much easier to remember the negative things that have gone on than it is to remember some of the positive things that have gone on. So I try to kind of help um, the students, the clients, to access what I've called proud learning moments. Things that have, they've done in their life that they haven't necessarily given themselves credit for. And more importantly, they haven't unpacked how they've done that. What is that recipe of success? What did they need to do in order to have that proud learning moment where they're going, I did it. And so being able to help our clients access that is really quite important. As a side note, they have a difficult time accessing it. Even when I go, can you remember? God, I don't, I don't know. But I start to then ask some questions. So here are some questions that you can start to ask that might um, stimulate, jog, jog their, jot their, their memory um, about these proud learning, learning moments. And I love doing it with anybody. And I find that sometimes, particularly with first generation um, students, it's even a little bit more of this, ooh, this is, this is really, really good. So I start asking questions. How many of you, English is your second language? And students will ask, or if it's your client and you know that English is their second language, you can unpack that. I bet you didn't learn overnight to speak English. I bet that you were a little bit Worry about that you didn't speak English that well and you hid the fact. Maybe you avoided conversations. But somewhere in your mind, in your heart, you made a decision, I'm going to go ahead and learn this. I ask, how many of you have learned how to play a musical instrument? Did you just pick up the the guitar, the trumpet, and just start playing and it came out and you're ready to join the band? No. That's a proud learning moment when you got to a point where you were able to play with the keys and you got better. Even if you're not a professional musician or you haven't done anything with it in terms of joining a band, you took your learning to a different sort of level. And then I, I ask, can you think about something academically that you just didn't think that you were going to be able to do? That you didn't, you weren't sure that you're going to be able to accomplish it. Maybe you had a voice inside of you from somebody that said, you're not going to be able to do this. Perhaps you got motivated and started by saying, I'm not going to let that person define me. I'm going to show them. And I say, sometimes that's a really good motivation when you've been hurt and someone doesn't see you in the way that you want to be seen. Go ahead and show them differently. So they, they start to write down this proud learning story. I actually ask them to write it down. Take your time. Take five minutes and, and 
bring in the texture of it, the, the, the nuances, the, the different colors of it. Remember the people that were involved. This is so important that they have a felt sense of this proud learning moment. Because from my thinking and my paradigm, and, and it's been my experience, when people start to remember this, it just brings a, a smile to their face, they stand up taller, and they feel differently about themselves. So they write the story. Um, they share the story if, if you have an opportunity to share it. If, if it's your one-on-one -on -one client, you ask them to read it out loud. If you're in a group, you ask them to share it perhaps in pairs or, or, or uh, triads. And it's amazing that they start to think about something that they hadn't thought about for a very long time. And so we start to bring in the word resiliency to this. You've learned difficult things. You haven't given up. You've been able to do things that you didn't think that you are going to be able to do. And then we start to unpack their story. And when we unpack their story, we start to put some words to what it was that they were doing. Did they have purpose? Were they driven? Did they really want it bad and they weren't going to let anything get in the way? And the answer usually is yes. Did they get it right the first time? No. Did they fail in their attempts? Yes. Did they get back up and try it again? And the answer is always yes. And we start talking about resiliency. Did they ask for help? 95% of the time, they asked for help to accomplish what it was that they were trying to accomplish. And I asked them, why did you ask for help? I wanted it bad. I didn't want anything to interfere. So your tutor or whoever you asked for help felt your enthusiasm. Yes, they did. Did you have to make sacrifices? Did you not go to a party that you wanted to? Did you not watch TV or play a game as much as you wanted to? And almost all the time they said, yep, I made sacrifices. Did you have to put away distractions? Yep. I didn't want things to interfere with me. Did you have a kind of mindset that I'm going to learn this, I'm going to do this? And their attitude is almost always yes. So you see when I'm talking with them that we start to unpack it. And they start to sense of, I've done this before. This is my recipe for success of learning things that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do or it's perceived to be difficult. And so I, I, I end today with these seven steps of remembering your purpose, um, knowing your academic worth, asking for help, being mindful of your attitude and uplift your, your attitude. Purposeful effort pays off. Distraction, magnets, how they can be hindering. But the final part is really my favorite part is the resiliency model of remembering your proud learning moments. And so as you go through this, I would encourage you to access your proud learning moments because I know that you've had many of them unpack them. What did it take for you to do this? What you did may not work with other people, but at least you know that you were able to get a sense of what your um, proud learning moments felt and what the recipe of success is.
I'll end on this, and I, I, I love this, this sort of quote is, it's important to learn from our failures, and it's important to learn from our successes. Let's do both of them. Uh, thank you very much for um, listening, and uh, I hope um, you'll be able to sort of um, get connected to some of the concepts that have been presented to you and to be able to personalize those and to be able to use them with your students, with your clients. Thank you very much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.